Today's element was discovered in 1878 by recurring character Jean-Charles Galassard de Marignac, but it wasn't isolated until 29 years later. Other recurring character, Karl Auer von Welsbach, accomplished that feat, and named the element Aldebaranium, after a star named Aldebaran. However, Georges Urban, a character who is somehow only now debuting on this show, also succeeded in isolating the element at about the same time, and he named the element Neoeterbium. Urban also happened to sit on the Commission on Atomic Mass, which determined the official names for the elements at the time. So that's why today's element has us traveling once more to the hinterlands of Sweden, rather than ad astra per chemica. If it's any consolation, we'll have several opportunities to visit the stars over the course of the remaining 48 episodes, but this is the last time we'll visit the little outer village of Itterby. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're getting fired up over Iterbium. This is the 14th Lanthanite. So by now, you're well aware that these elements travel in herds due to their chemical similarity to each other. That explains why so many of them were discovered in one place. But why was that one place the rinky-dink town of Itterby? Part of the reason is because of one shady teenage magician who was too clever for his own good. Said charlatan was Johann Friedrich Butger, born at the end of the 17th century. He became an apothecary's apprentice at a young age, and he was both hardworking and a quick study. He was also quite deft, and capably performed a routine that convinced onlookers that he had, in fact, discovered how to turn base metals into gold. His master warned that no good would come of this. Supposedly, alchemists exposed as con artists would be paraded about the town square in suits made of tinsel, and then hanged with a gilded rope. Butker was not dissuaded, though, and word of this wunderkind spread far and wide. Soon enough, even Frederick I heard the news and he was slated to become the king of Prussia. Few people need gold as badly as a king. It can dazzle foreign dignitaries, finance conquests in far-off lands, and make scandals disappear. As aware of this as any regent, Frederick commanded Butger to briskly bring his behind to Berlin. Obviously, Butger's tricks wouldn't have held up to royal scrutiny, so he immediately fled across the border to Poland. There he was safe from Frederick I, 
but unfortunately this placed him under the jurisdiction of Augustus the Strong, perhaps the only man in Europe with a greater desire for gold. Augustus had his men find Butker, and he provided the young alchemist with comfortable quarters, delicious food, a well-equipped laboratory, even a billiards room. The young man was given practically anything he could possibly want, except the right to leave. He was under constant watch, and his guards would pelt him with stones if he wandered too close to the gate. Butger labored alongside Ehrenfried Walter von Turnhaus, Augustus's senior scientist, and the two really did perform some cutting-edge chemistry. In the course of their studies, they constructed kilns and crucibles that could withstand greater heat than any that had come before. But no amount of research was going to turn lead into gold, and after years of making excuses for his lack of progress, Shirley Butker's head was filled with nightly visions of tinseled threads and gilded gallows. It's a good thing, then, that he and Chernhaus realized what they had on their hands in 1706, when they pulled a hard red ceramic out of the fire. It looked an awful lot like some of the statuettes in Augustus's collection that came from East Asia. It looked like porcelain. That is one of the few substances they could have stumbled upon that was just about as good as gold. Europeans were crazy for the stuff. Porcelain is durable and uniquely beautiful, and at that time, the only people who knew the secret to its creation all lived on the opposite side of the globe. Europeans had been trying for centuries to replicate the fine work of Chinese artisans to no avail. Butger and Chernhaus were about to change all that. Together, they learned that creating porcelain required a special kind of white clay called kaolin, and specific varieties of feldspar and quartz. High-quality porcelain also differed from normal pottery, they found, in that the clay and glaze needed to be fired simultaneously, and at exceptionally high heat. Soon the pair was pumping out the best porcelain in Europe, even if it wasn't quite as good as China's China. Butger had proven his value to Augustus the Strong, which saved his life but also guaranteed his continuing captivity. After all, Augustus couldn't let Butker go out and sell the secret of his riches to all the other monarchs in Europe. Obviously, Butker never did find the Philosopher's Stone, but he did manage to produce a very impressive gilded cage. Despite his best efforts, there was no way Strong Gus could keep the secret to porcelain's manufacture under wraps for long. It was similar to a prior struggle four centuries earlier, when German and Dutch glassmakers eventually discovered the methods to create glass as good as the Venetians, even though Venice imprisoned its master glassblowers on the island of Murano. 
So within a few decades, the European porcelain industry exploded. And demand for kaolin, feldspar, and quartz did, too. And it just so happened that the earth around the tiny Swedish town of Itterby was particularly rich in feldspar and quartz. Not only that, but the minerals from the Itterby mine lent bright streaks of color to ceramics. That is why so many prominent geologists and chemists, like Johann Gadolin and Carl Axel Arrhenius, spent their time sifting through soil from this remote locale. Centuries-old secrets, imprisoned alchemists, and geological happenstance all came together to make sure history never forgets the name, Itterby. Incidentally, we occasionally study word origins on this program, and porcelain is a word that definitely has surprising origins. Porcelain was named that due to its resemblance to the cowrie seashell, called porcella in Italian. All good so far? But that word shares its roots with the Latin word for pig. What possible connection could there be between seashells and sows? Well, it's not really a literal connection. Porca was also a word that ancient Romans used as an insult toward women, especially those who happened to be practitioners of the world's oldest profession. From there, porcella came to be a way to refer to the tools of the trade, so to speak. I'll let John Deerdorf of the website Word Connections tie it all together. Quote, The Porcella seashell was named for its shape. A slot down the center with lips furled over by some dirty-minded beachcomber. And porcelain was later so-called from looking like the smooth white surface of the shell. Just something fun to consider when eating off expensive dishware or receiving a dental crown. All that to say that porcelain can make for a beautiful addition to your element collection, even if the ytterbium content is relatively low. Anything from a Hummel figurine to a gravy boat will do, but as a listener of this program, you might be interested in acquiring an insulator from an old vacuum tube computer. Porcelain is a highly effective insulator, and by the 1950s, it was actually pretty cheap. Ytterbium still sees use in the computer industry, but on a far, far smaller scale. It looks like a promising material to use as memory in quantum computers. Quantum computers are strange. Everything quantum is strange. Unless it's charm, or top, or bottom, or up or down. Never mind that. 
Traditionally, computers store information as a series of bits. A bit is the smallest piece of information possible. A yes or a no, represented by a one or a zero. A bit can be either a one or a zero, and it can change from one to the other, but it can only ever be one of those things at a time. Sounds obvious, right? Well, quantum computing is built on qubits. Qubits are similar to bits. They represent a tiny fragment of information represented as a zero or a one. Or as a zero and a one. That's right. Unlike a traditional bit, and in opposition to all common sense, a qubit can say yes and no at the same time. It is as bizarre as it sounds, and it allows scientists to perform tasks that were previously thought to be impossible, or at least infeasible. Building such a device requires materials with some very specific properties. And it turns out that Iterbium meets those requirements pretty well. Quantum computing is still in its infancy. It's hard to say just what it could do or how widespread it might become. But scientists are currently using quantum computers to explore some of the most complex systems on Earth. From artificial intelligence, to cryptography, to trying to predict the weather. In some ways, we might be on the brink of a breakthrough every bit as revolutionary as the silicon microchip. Or maybe nothing much will happen at all. But we probably will not see both happen simultaneously. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. A tip of the hat to James H. for letting me know about Iterbium's role in quantum computing. To learn why you could also find Iterbium inside an atomic bomb, visit episodictable.com slash yb. Next time, we'll stroll down the Champs-Élysées with Lutetium. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you to vote.